that's what I hope we will see from Exodus chapter 32 this morning. We've got a number of guests with us this morning. We're glad that you're here um, and hope that you've been made to feel welcome. Uh, when, I, when I say every Sunday, please, every week, I, I, I love the fact that we take the Bible, we open it up, we look at it, we see what it says, we figure out how it applies to our lives and, uh, and can be changed by it. It's, it's re- it really is, I mean, apart from, you know, knucklehead me being the one standing up in front of everybody, it really is us hearing from God together. And I hope that you'll look at it that way together this morning. Now, we're going to end up working our way all the way through Exodus chapter 32 this morning. Um, but what I'm going to do is we'll, we'll work through it uh, in sections. So instead of me reading the entire chapter at the very beginning, I thought about doing that. It takes about six minutes to read through the, the, the chapter nonstop. And we, we have time to do that, but I'm, instead I'm going to kind of read through it in sections as we, as we preach through it, as I, as I preach through it here together this morning. Have you, have you ever been surprised at how quickly a young child can get into trouble? I, like I'm looking at, you know, young children even in the room. And for many of us, it is still a very real reality that in our homes, um, you, can, you can be watching the child play peacefully, walk out of the room, and I'm not, not hours, not, not even minutes, but in seconds, disaster can occur. It, it, sometimes it's, it's humorous. Sometimes it is, it is genuinely terrifying. And, and you have said things like this, I can't turn my back on you, right? Those, those words have come out of many of our mouths, right? Where, okay, he's okay. Well, I can't turn my back. I mean, it's that fast. One moment, everything was fine. And the next moment, they are on a beeline, laser beam path to self-destruction. And we chuckle when we think about it in children. But it isn't that funny when we consider it in ourselves. Have, Have you ever been surprised at how quickly you can turn? You're happy. You're joyful. You're peaceful. And in moments, you can be in a fit of anger and of outrage, of fearfulness, kicking things, hurting people, throwing stuff, saying things that even you surprise you with how quickly you went from genuinely peaceful, content, happy, to borderline demon-possessed. And we have to laugh a little bit or we'll cry. It is astonishing at how quickly we can go from being a gentle and happy sort of person to a bit of a monster. And in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at people who were very, very much like us. In fact, the Bible uses the nation of Israel 
as a bit of a mirror for us to help us see us even better. We're going to look at a group of people who turn so quickly that it gives God whiplash. The story of the world is found in Exodus chapter 32. We're going to look at that together this morning. We're looking this morning, and many of your Bibles even have as a heading above chapter 32, it may say the golden calf. And, and some of us are old enough that when you think of the golden calf, once again, we have our wonderful um, Charlton Heston to thank for giving us visual imagery of what passages like this look like. This morning, in order to prepare my heart for the preaching of God's Word, I YouTubed clips of Charlton Heston coming down off the mountain with the tablets of God in his hand, right? And he throws them against it. He throws them at, you remember this? He throws them at the golden calf, and the golden calf sparks with electrical power. and energy. I mean, it's a, I'm not sure that's exactly what it looked like. But for many of us, that's what we've got in our mind's eye when we think about the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Here's what I want us to see this morning. Our unfaithful sinfulness highlights the mercy of God. Our unfaithful sinfulness highlights the mercy of God. And I, I just want us to be very clear this morning I, this passage does something, and I want to be faithful to the passage. I actually want this passage to do two things. I want it to remind us of the sinfulness of us on our way to seeing the glorious mercy and grace of God. There is a reason that we gather here this morning, and we can't have smiles on our faces, and we can't have joy in our heart. And we can sing about Christ, our cornerstone. We can sing and ask God to speak to us, not fearing that he will strike us dead because of our sinfulness. But the beauty of God's mercy and the beauty of God's grace is seen more merciful, is seen more beautiful when we remember our unfaithful sinfulness. Four points as we walk through this passage together this morning. First of all, we're going to see that God has a good plan for his people. Secondly, we'll see God's people sin. Thirdly, we'll see God respond in righteousness. And fourthly, we'll see God's intercessor seeks to make atonement. So point number one here this morning is that God has a good plan for his people. And we're actually not even going to see that first and foremost here in Exodus chapter 32. Now, we are now beginning the conclusion of the book of Exodus. I think we've got four or five more sermons. Some of you thought it would never happen that we would actually end the book of Exodus. And I'll be honest with you, I can't say that I'm looking forward to it. I have enjoyed preaching through the book of Exodus so much that I'm not like eager to finish. But I realize that some of you think, you know, Jeremy, before I die, it would be nice to hear you preach on a book other than the book of Exodus. So we'll get to something else before you die. But we're going to take a few more weeks to get through. And as we're concluding the book of Exodus, we've seen, we've seen God's good plan for his people from Exodus chapter 1 until now. Now remember, the book of Exodus is our story. It's the human story. God had a good plan for Adam and Eve. God has a good plan for Israel. God has a good plan for us. And you remember the story starts with Joseph in Egypt, and the family of Joseph begins to multiply and multiply and multiply, and there's a new pharaoh who comes to town, and Joseph's descendants are now enslaved to the Egyptian people. 
400 years go by of the Israelites being enslaved here in Egypt. And generations of Israelites are born and live and die as Egyptian slaves. And they cry out, and God hears their cries. And God sends a very unlikely deliverer, right? This young boy who had been placed by his faithful mother in this small ark, this small basket, and placed in the river. And he's drawn out by Pharaoh's daughter. And this very unlikely deliverer God uses to mightily deliver his people. God single-handedly delivers them, right? It's not because Moses is so eloquent. Moses doesn't even want to go. It's not because Moses is a mighty military leader. There is no military to lead. This victory over Egypt is single-handedly, unilaterally accomplished by God. And they begin their journey. God delivers them out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And God delivers them through water and crushes Egypt's chariots, and he brings them through the water, and then God brings them into the wilderness, and they begin their journey toward the promised land. The problem is they're in the wilderness, and there's no, there's no food and water in most of the wilderness, and God miraculously begins providing water for the children of Israel, and he gives them manna, which is this bread that shows up in the morning, and quail, which they are able to easily access. So they've got, they've got manna, bread, and quail, and I think that was the invention of the first Chick-fil-A sandwich. I think they took manna, and they took quail, and then like now we, through evolution, have the Chick-fil-A sandwich. It's a Jesus chicken anyway. So I'm just, I think I haven't studied all the, the ancient Hebrew text on that, but I think your mind, if you have manna and quail together as a Chick-fil-A sandwich, that's about right. Okay, I'm kidding, by the way. I know we have a number of guests with us, and you're like, man, that guy, he believes in Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I, you know, it, it's okay. It's all right. Um, uh, sorry. I actually do have the word Chick-fil-A written in my notes, by the way. Um, so that sh- shows you I'd, I'd, I was excited about sharing that with you. Okay. God brings them. God br- What's that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, God does need to heal me. Uh, God, uh, he, he delivers them and he brings them to this mountain, to Mount Sinai. And God says, I'm going to, I'm going to establish a covenant with you. Like a uh, husband and wife are married and, and, and uh, come into a covenant with each other, God is going to bring his people into covenant. And he says, okay, look, everybody who wants to be in covenant with me, who's in? And all of the people say, yes, yes. We want to be in special relationship with you. And so Moses goes up the mountain between God and the people, and he goes up back and forth several times. And before we look at, uh, hold your place there in chapter 32, because we're coming right back. But look at the end of verse tw- uh, chapter, rather, chapter 24 of Exodus. So Exodus 24, and look down in verse 18. Flip over there. This is important for you to see this. Exodus chapter 24, verse 18. It says this, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Now, in our Bibles, and in the way that I've preached through the book of Exodus, after chapter 24, there's chapter 25, and then 26, and 27, and 28, right? And we're learning about the tabernacle, and the building of the tabernacle, and all of these things in chapter 29, and 30, and 31. And then finally, we get to chapter 32, but listen, In the experience of the people of Israel, chapter 24, verse 18, Moses goes up into the mountain, and then then in their experience, we jump into chapter 32. 
right? So all these other chapters, that's Moses receiving what God has for him when he's up on the mountain. But on a timeline, chapter 24, verse 18, and now we begin immediately, Moses has gone up into the mountain. And Moses has gone up into the mountain to receive the instructions, this, this, uh, this testimony, this covenant from God, the, the Ten Commandments and the other uh, the other instructions that God has for Moses on uh, building the tabernacle and constructing the tabernacle. God is making all the arrangements regarding this wonderful marriage covenant with Israel. God has a good plan for his people. And in chapter 32, something horrible happens. Remember your child and you turn your back on your child for just a moment and you turn back around, and there they are doing inexplicable harm. And you say to them, I, I can't turn my back on you. God and Moses are up on Mount Sinai. Verse 1 of chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us... Elohim, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, I mean, they're talking about Moses, the guy that they, God had clearly used to lay them out of this bondage in Egypt. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we, we don't know what has become of him. I mean, he's been gone for days. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your Elohim. That's the word that's used for Lord. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. What was Moses up on the mountain receiving from God? Instructions on how to build an altar. What are the people doing down at the base of the mountain? They're violating the second commandment, which Moses is up on the mountain receiving. They're building an altar to this God, which is Moses is up on the mountain receiving. Uh, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings. Moses is receiving instructions about burnt offerings. And brought peace offerings. Moses is receiving instructions about peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And just like it was God's wonderful plan for Adam and Eve to exist in God's presence, in God's place, it seems like Adam and Eve immediately sin. Moses is up on the mountain with God, and God's people immediately are turning their back on him. Imagine, imagine a young couple and, and the groom walks the bride into their honeymoon suite and he forgets something back at the car. And so he goes to get it and he comes back into that honeymoon suite only to find his new bride with another man. And we would think that that's that is unthinkable. That kind of unfaithfulness is absolutely impossible. 
it, it isn't impossible. It isn't impossible. And in fact, you know in your own life's experience how quickly you can proclaim faithfulness to God and in a moment turn your back on Him. God's people sin. God's people have been sinning from the beginning. Again, this story in Exodus Exodus chapter 32, Hebrew scholars call Exodus chapter 32 the story of Adam and Eve. God makes Adam and Eve. He puts them in the garden to rule over the world under him. And it's almost as if God says, hey, you have all of this to enjoy. Don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He turns around, turns back around, and Adam and Eve are hiding because they've broken God's good instruction. Here, God's people, Moses is up on the mountain, and when he doesn't come back after somewhere between 1 and 40 days, the people begin to look for other gods. Moses was up working out the details, and God says to him, God's the one who actually brings it to Moses' attention. Your people, your people, Moses, are down there being unfaithful. Look in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. It's almost as if God is immediately wanting to distance himself from his own people. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, there are many questions about Exodus chapter 32 and theological points to be made about Exodus chapter 32. It is, it is rich with all sorts of wonderful details. And this morning, we're going to look at the big overarching theme of God, our sin and God's mercy. There's differing opinion as to exactly why Egypt was creating a calf. Egypt had spent hundreds of years in Egypt, and the calf god was one of, the, the, the bull god was one of the gods of Egypt. And many scholars, and I tend to agree with this, many scholars believe that, uh, that Egypt was beginning to synchronize some of the things that they had known for the last hundreds of years with this new Yahweh religion. In fact, if you look in verse, um, verse 5, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. I believe, as do many, many scholars, that what Israel was doing was was taking the one true God, Yahweh, Israel, and they were representing him in this calf God form. They weren't turning their back completely on Yahweh. They were turning their back on Yahweh. But they, it wasn't like they were saying, ah, forget that God. We're just going to come up with this new God, and we're going to worship a calf. No, we're going to work. We, Moses is gone. We don't know what to do, but we remember we've got 400 years of history of knowing how this worship thing works. Let's create this strong healthy calf kind of God, and we'll worship Yahweh through him. You can take the Israelites out of Egypt. You know the rest of the quote already, don't you? You can't take the Egypt out of the Israelites. They broke God's law. They committed idolatry. 
They created a God they could understand and that they could relate to. They, they really sin in two primary ways, and all sin is really one kind of sin. But the Israelites here, they sin by their rebellion and their replacement. Their rebellion and their replacement. If you're taking notes under number point number two, you could just write rebellion and replacement. When, when sin, we sin when we break God's law. That's, that's rebellion. The first two commands were being broken in the making of this of this calf. The first two sins are being broken. I have no other gods before me. Don't bow down to any graven image. And they are, they are bowing themselves down to a literally a graven image. These commands are being broken. And there also appears to be even the, there, there's, they're, they're breaking God's law regarding sexual purity and cleanness in, in verse um, Verse 6, where it talks about the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That, that phrase, rose up to play, right? That's not like, hey, church softball league. That, that's, that's not what's going on here. That word play, they're, they're, actually, this is interesting for word, my fellow word nerds in here. The root Hebrew word is the root of the name Isaac. You remember Isaac's name means to laugh or, or to play, and you remember when Isaac had his wife Rachel with him and they went into the foreign land, Isaac lied about his wife Rachel being his sister. But when the king saw that Isaac was Isaacing with his wife, the king realized that's not his sister, that's his wife. That, that's how that word, this word playing, laughter, playing, it has a sexual kind of connotation to it. And so God's people are creating graven images and bowing down, burning offerings to it, feasting, very likely getting drunk, and then, in, and then celebrating with, with sexual misconduct. They are rebelling against the laws of God. But then they're also replacing God himself. When we make idols, we replace the one true God. We, we talked about the second commandment. We talked clearly about that. They had made an idol. They literally made a thing out of gold, gold that they had gotten from the Egyptians when they left the land of Egypt. The, the land that they had been delivered from, they used the gold from there to create an idol fashioned after the idols of the land that they had been delivered from. And then they formed it into a calf god, one of the gods of the Egyptians from whom they had been delivered. We look at Israel and we go, man, you guys are so dumb. And then they tie it all to Yahweh. Verse 32, I, I mentioned earlier, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. I, I believe what the Israelites are doing is they're saying, hey, this God who delivered us, he's great. Let's have him, let's have him in a form that we understand that we can manage. Let's have God in our image or in an image that we can access and we can understand. Brothers and sisters, idolatry simply is creating a God that isn't truly God. There's a lot of different ways that we can be guilty of idolatry. I want you to think for a moment. And this might be the most uncomfortable part of the morning for us together. I want you to think for a moment. Have you created a God in the image that you want him to be? 
Have you created a God in the image that you want him to be? And before you start making application to all the other people in this room who have idols, I want you to stop and think about you here for a little bit. When we think that God is on our side and against all those other people, we've immediately misrepresented him. Because now the assumption is, I'm the righteous one and the others are the unrighteous one. Regardless of what issue you're talking about, you've established yourself as the moral authority on who God is and what he's like. And God likes my kind of people and dislikes those kinds of people. Brothers and sisters, the reality is there's one kind of people, rebellious sinners, And God's judgment comes upon all of them. And it is only through faith in Jesus Christ that anyone is delivered. Republicans aren't more likely to be delivered from the wrath of God than Democrats. When you think that he is against homosexuality but overlooks your porn addiction, you've created a false god. When you post memes on the internet about other people's sins but do nothing to lovingly confront the sins of your own children, you're worshiping a false god. When you think he is against the other political viewpoint, but ignores the pride in your heart of thinking that you are genuinely smarter and better than others, then you've created a false god. When you think he looks down on lazy people, but is unconcerned with your materialism, You've created a false God. When you think that he was a white, middle-class American, you've created a false God. He was not white. He was not middle-class. He was not American. And friends, just like Adam and Eve, and just like Israel, you and I have and do turn from God and sin. Look in verse 8. God is speaking to Moses. The Lord is speaking to Moses. Back up into verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Notice, it wasn't, there wasn't like outside influence that corrupted them. They, they corrupted themselves. And this next phrase just convicts me and terrifies me. They have turned aside quickly out of the way. Brothers and sisters, it's like immediately God's people are doing the wrong thing. We sin by breaking God's good instructions. We rebel against him. We sin by creating idols. We replace him. The people through whom God wants to join into a covenant and rule the world, they are unfaithful to him. This is the story of Israel. It's the story of Adam and Eve all over again. It's our story as well. And brothers and sisters, God responds in righteousness. God says, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to wipe them out. Look in verse 7. Oh, we just read verses 7 and 8. Let's jump into verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone. Isn't it interesting? Brothers, uh, understand this. Uh, um, as we read through Exodus chapter 32, we, we understand that, that God is a spirit, 
right? Um, Moses is writing the, his interaction with God in a kind of a, this is the big word is anthropomorphic way, in a way as if two humans are interacting with each other so that we can understand more clearly how God and Moses are interacting with each other. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, if I was Moses, I'd be like, okay, you want to toast them, that's fine, because you just, like, you're going to make a great nation of me? Sounds good. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember, Moses is God hasn't forgotten. Again, this is language that Moses is using to help us understand. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. Again, often the way we think about the, the two tablets is five of them are written on one and the other five are written on the other. But m- m- more likely, all ten were written on one and all ten were written on the other. There were two tablets. When a covenant was struck, there was a, you received one document and the, the other person received one of the documents. So these two tablets uh, representing this covenant between God and Israel The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the camp as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's noise of war in the camp. So Joshua is accompanying Moses on his way down the mountain, and he said, it does not sound of shouting for victory or or the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. I I find that it's interesting that the God that they had created ends up in the outhouses of Israel. The people have broken the covenant. Moses didn't just drop the tablets because he was so angry he lost control. I don't, I, and even though it is clear that Moses is doing what he's doing out of anger, I don't think he's just so ticked off that he can't take it anymore. I think what Moses is doing when he holds those tablets in front of God's people and smashes them, he is saying, look what you have done. Smash. And it wasn't just, it wasn't like, oh my goodness, Moses, you broke these artifacts. I mean, if the British Museum had these today, can you imagine what they would be worth? Moses, when Moses breaks these tablets, they're, they're just rock tablets. What has been done is that the covenant has been violated. The covenant has been broken. 
And Moses goes and confronts his brother Aaron, and Aaron acts just like we do. Aaron comes up with the lamest kind of excuse. I mean, he literally says, I threw their jewelry in a fire and out popped this golden calf. And, right? I mean, Moses is, is trying to get some straight answers here from his brother, Aaron. And friends, don't be too hard on Aaron. He learned from Adam and Eve, right? God goes to Adam. What does Adam say? She did it. She made me do it. And he goes to Eve, and he says to Eve, and what does she say? The snake made me do it. You and I have learned from all of them. You and I make excuses. God, of course I was unfaithful to my spouse. I mean, imagine what it's like being married to them. Uh, of course I drink too much. Life is hard. Of course I post mean things on the internet. The world is bad. Of course we sleep together. Everyone does it. Of course I'm living for money. Life is easier and less threatening without it. Of course I lied. Imagine the consequences if I had told the truth. Imagine you bringing your ironic, not ironic, ironic, like Aaron. Imagine you walking before God with your lame excuse and God going, oh, that totally makes sense. I, I see why you have directly disobeyed me. I see why you have operated according to your own understanding rather than my clear and explicit instruction. I don't usually make exceptions, but you bring up a good point. No, this is, this is not how God responds. This is not how Moses responds to Aaron. This is not how God responds to Moses. In verses 25 and following, they may not be as familiar to us as the first part of this story. Let me read in verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. This is, the, this is the tribe that God is going to use for the priesthood. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now, now listen carefully. This, this, these, are, these are sober words. It's a serious passage. Put your sword on your side, each of you. And go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. Moses says, okay, who's on the Lord's side? Thousands of people are killed and sin is punished. 
Adam and Eve's sin was punished. Your sin will be punished. All sin is punished. Brothers and sisters, the wages of sin is death. When we rebel against God's command, when we replace God with gods of our own creation and gods of our own image, we sin against the one true God. And he would not be good. He would not be loving if he, if he let sin go unpunished. He wouldn't be righteous if he allowed for unrighteousness. See, God demands perfection of those who will enter into his promised land. The problem is there ain't one of us who's anywhere near close to perfection. We are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. God's people here, of for whom he has these wonderful plans, like Adam and Eve, they immediately turn from him like Israel, you and I, so often, so quickly. In fact, we're born sinners but even after our conversion, we still sin against God. And again, looking at Israel reminded me this week of how so often I can be so quick to turn, have my devotions, put my Bible down, walk out into the living room or the kitchen where my family is living and be rude and unkind. And you might think, that's a little thing. It's not a little thing. And I don't just do little things. The big things are none of your business. All sin is punished. Number four, and here's where we begin to turn our eyes from the sad and pitiful condition of looking inward to looking upward. God's intercessor seeks to make atonement. Moses does something here that is remarkable. I stopped before I finished verse 30. Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and that's where I stop. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for you. Now, we're so familiar with the New Testament that we already know that that sounds wrong. Moses is saying, Maybe I can go and make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves Elohim of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and our Bibles have a dash there, Moses doesn't even finish that sentence. If you will forgive their sin, but if, if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. I like everyone in here. Apart from my family, I'm probably not going to take your prison sentence, right? If you do something that deserves prison, I'll come visit you, right? I'll bake a file into a cake and bring it to you and, you know, that. Like, but I, I'm not going to like voluntarily like just say, okay, well, George, you know, supposed to get 20 years, and uh, I'll, I'll take that for him. I, I, I don't like you that much. The people of Israel have been a pain in the neck to Moses, and Moses is saying, God, for the sake of your name and for your glory, and so that the other nations won't look down on us and on you, please forgive their sins. And if you won't, blot me 
out of your book for them. But the Lord said to Moses, here's the summary of what the Lord says to Moses. No, that won't work. That won't work. Moses, what? You, you're a rascal just like them. You have already sinned. You, will, you killed the Egyptian guy. You, you're going to be hitting rocks instead of speaking to rocks. This, you know, this isn't going to work. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Again, that's one of those sentences to Israel. That's for all of humanity. The wages of sin is death. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. Moses makes a request. God, I will give myself as a ransom. I will give myself to make atonement for God's people, for your people. But Moses can't be a substitute. Moses is a sinner. Moses needs a Savior every bit as much as the rest of Israel needs a Savior. And God sends a plague. But Moses, brothers and sisters, we know that the Bible doesn't end here at the end of Exodus chapter 32. And we don't have time to do all of the fast-forwarding through the Bible. But Moses is pointing ahead. He's pointing ahead to one who would come, and he doesn't even know how clearly he is pointing ahead to the one who would come and live amongst people who were constantly breaking covenant with God. Jesus comes to earth and he lives amongst the, the, the uh, humanity who is constantly breaking covenant with God. This man, this man who is living in community and uh, with people who are breaking covenant with God, he's the only righteous one. And this man was on the mountain with God and he came down from the mountain, Jesus Christ, came down from the mountain with God. And he had come down to the people and he found them unfaithful and idolatrous and adulterous and deserving of punishment. They were rebellious and they had replaced God. And yet this man said, I'll give my life for theirs. And because this man, Jesus Christ, was the perfect God, man, Jesus Christ, his offer of blot me out of your book for their sake pour upon me the wrath of God and don't pour it upon them because this was the perfect the perfect sacrifice his offer for atonement was accepted by God sin must be punished and it's born by Jesus Christ and for those who put their trust not in the falsely created golden calf god of this world but in the true savior Jesus Christ your sins will be paid for in Christ. Everyone's sin is paid for. Everyone's sins will be paid for. You pay for them or Christ pays for them, but everyone's sin is paid for. And for those who put their faith in Christ, Jesus Christ bears the wrath of God on your behalf and your sin is separated as far as the east is from the west. In him, you can find the forgiveness of your sins that you desperately need and the daily rest for your soul that you're longing for because we still continue to sin quickly. And God never turns his back on us, but it's as if, if he gave us that moment, I can't even turn my back on you. Ah, yes, that, that's true, Lord. I sinned again. I, I'm, I'm speaking from personal experience. I'm telling you, 
There are days where I think I am absolutely a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde character. How did I get that angry at my kids for doing that thing? Why why did I get so frustrated about this set of circumstances? Why, Why was I so offended by my name or reputation being being sullied by like wh- why did i get so quickly I, I was having a good day and like out of nowhere it seems to me out of nowhere i've turned on god and turned on others i'm not loving god and i'm not loving others i'm loving me and i want to love me and i don't want you messing with my love of me for a little while what, what's going on that well brothers and sisters i am a sinner I've gotten it from Adam. I've got it from Israel. I got it from Glenn. That's my dad's name. Brothers and sisters, but the beauty of this is this. Yes, I sin, but he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We go to God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've sinned again, but your, your son's perfect life on my behalf is what makes me acceptable before you. It has never been, nor will it ever be, my righteousness that impresses God. It is the righteousness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Turn to this this, uh, intercessor, Jesus Christ, who has made atonement for His people. There was one perfect one. Our unfaithful sinfulness highlights His faithful mercy and grace you're here this morning and you've never turned from your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ, then then do that today. You can do it sitting right there. There's not a formulaic miracle prayer that you pray and you'll float out of here afterwards. If you'd like to talk with someone, I'll be up here. There'll be pastors up here and in the back that'd be happy to visit with you about any of this. But to put faith in Christ is simply to admit I'm a sinner and I know I deserve damnation. I'm putting my faith in the perfect intercessor, the righteous God-man Jesus Christ, his life for mine, his death for mine, his resurrection as mine. Repent and trust in Christ as the Redeemer. Turn from your sin of rebellion and replacement and put faith in him. And for those in here who already know Christ as your Savior, be reminded again today of the goodness of the gospel. I have a feeling that before the day is over, most of us are going to blow it again. And I'm already encouraged, not by the fact that I'm going to blow it, but by the fact there was one who lived his life perfectly, never blowing it, and his righteousness has been given to me. And I can go before a father and say, yeah, God, I blew it again. Forgive me. But I stand before you in the righteousness of the perfect intercessor, the one who Moses was pointing ahead to, Jesus Christ. If you bow your heads and close your eyes, I'm going to invite the music team to come up, and they're going to close us with a song, and then we'll have a concluding prayer. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior,